The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 12. If it's true that the Roman soldiers with their whips and their mocking and their spitting and their hammers and nails couldn't destroy the relationship between Jesus and God, then it's also true that neither can cancer or war or AIDS or some other scourge. In other words, it's a tremendous liberation. It doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. Quite the contrary. But it means the world cannot do anything to that relationship. So that dying becomes a victory over death. And this is what the cross is. It's a death that is victory over death. It's not giving in to death. It's not resigning to death. It's not Kubler-Ross. You see what I mean? It's not that. It's the opposite of that. It's victory over death. Death, where is thy sting? Conquering death. So then it says, they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. They seized him and led him away. That's the beginning of the Passion. Now he has been handed over. There is nothing he can do. He is in their clutches. I suppose it's in Matthew where one has to go to really suggest that the the Christian church is the Petrine church, meaning uh, from Peter, because it's uh, in Matthew where Jesus uh, gives Peter the keys, so to speak. Uh, But I think of it here, too, because just as Jesus has been handed over and he's led away, seized and led away, The next verse, or actually the second half of that same verse, says, but Peter was following at a distance. And I think that's probably to be expected, that the the church, the Petrine church, uh, at its best, is following at a distance. Uh, but But that's better than, you know, just completely running for cover. So then it says, when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Now this they, this means the, the little crowd, the camp followers of the persecuting crowd. You see? And they got to the courtyard of the high priest's house and gathered round and built a little fire and sat down and enjoyed each other's company. And Peter was among them. And so this, again, is, a, is a sort of the anthropological lucidity of the Gospels. It shows that Peter is drawn into the crowd of the persecutors. He's not drawn into their crowd, into the crowd because of the fiery persecutorial rhetoric. 
he's drawn drawn into it in a much more human way. It's just people gathering around the persecutorial quality of their of their uh, of their little community is sufficiently remote from their consciousness that they that it doesn't present a moral problem and so peter is able to move right into that and i think it's the gospel being very anthropologically astute in showing the way in which we're drawn into these things. However, it then says, a servant girl, seeing him in the firelight, stared at him and said, this man was also with him. Now, seeing him in the firelight, it's in John's Gospel, of course, that Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, But I think we can steal that and bring it into Luke's Gospel here for a second. Here's the light of the world who's over there at the center of the persecution. And Peter is out here on the periphery in the suburbs of the persecutorial uh, culture. And that culture is centered around a little fire, flickering little fire. Somebody squinting through the half-light of that particular little uh, illumination sees Peter. And this is this is the light that the world generates for itself. The light of the world that comes in to illumine the darkness is the light that comes from the cross. But the darkness, this is like Plato's allegory of the cave too, by the way. Uh, I don't want to get into that. But nevertheless, (laughs) the point is Peter is seen in that light. And in that light, it makes all the difference whether you're with us or against us. And so she says, I think you're with him. And he says, no, 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 not at all. And a few minutes later, a man, this is Luke again doing the woman and the man, a man says, you're also one of them. And he said, no, I'm not. And an hour later, another insisted, surely this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. At that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The cock crowed. Now, in Luke's gospel, it's not just that the cock crowed, but that the cock crowed at the moment Peter was still speaking in denial of Jesus, and at the same moment, that, quote, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So these three things happen all at the same time. He's, he's uttering the words of denial, the cock crows, and Jesus looks at him. And those three things add up to a conversion. And then Luke says, then, when those three things happen all at the same moment, then Peter remembered the word of the Lord how he had said to him before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went away and wept bitterly. Now, he remembered the word of the Lord in that specific instance. But it's the beginning of another bigger kind of remembrance. Peter remembered the word of the Lord. And this remembering the word of the Lord, as we'll see next week when we talk about the Emmaus story, is what Christian conversion is all about. Okay, now, Jesus 
is being turned over to his persecutors, and he's taken to the to the uh, Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, chief priests and scribes and elders, and and they say, if you are the Messiah, tell us. And he says, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I question you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And then it says, all of them ask, are you then the Son of God? He said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. All of them, it says, all of them. So the unanimity is generated at that moment. What Jesus has said is, from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. There's a very vivid version of this in John's Gospel. He's saying, right now you are on the judgment seat and I'm the one being judged. But beginning from this moment forward, the Son of Man will be on the judgment seat and will judge all humanity on the basis of the revelation that the cross will become. And this, I think, is a tremendous historical fact. Everything is now judged in terms of its victims. Increasingly in human history, Everything will be judged, always in retrospect, just as though, just as the, we hear the cock crow after the fact, but always judged in terms of its victims. And that's because the crucified one is sitting at the right hand of the power of God. That's the biblical way of expressing it. So now we have the little cat and mouse game with Pilate and Herod. Uh, they take Jesus... You see that... The, the Jews have to take Jesus to the Romans to get a, a public execution. And so when they present him to Pilate, the Roman authority, they articulate his transgressions in political terms. He's perverting our nation, forbidding us uh, from paying taxes and so on and so forth, claiming to be a Messiah. Pilate says, are you king? He says, you say so. Pilate says, I find no basis for uh, this accusation. And then he realizes he's from Galilee. Well, that's Herod's jurisdiction. Herod happens to be in Jerusalem, so he sends him to Herod. But when he sees him and interrogates him, he finds no reason to do away with him. So he uh, has his soldiers uh, treat Jesus with contempt and mock him, which they do. But uh, then he sends him back to Pilate. And then we get this little text. And again, this is the New Testament being anthropologically sophisticated. That same day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they had been enemies. And it's one of those little tags that just shows that a common mutual contempt for the victim can create social solidarity. Because it's an absolutely gratuitous remark otherwise. It has no reference to anything else in the New Testament. So back before Pilate, now we get the contest between Pilate and the crowd. Pilate realizes there's no reason to execute this man, and he tries to talk the crowd out of it. And he has no success whatsoever, and he finally capitulates to the crowd. Uh, it finally says, so, see, Pilate several times said, well, why don't I just have him beaten and released? So that's throwing a sop to the crowd. But they won't have anything to do with that. They say, crucify him. Finally, it says, Pilate 
gave his verdict that their demand should be granted. In other words, he capitulated to the crowd completely. Now, one of the things that Luke doesn't do very thoroughly is treat the Barabbas story with, with any kind of detail. In Luke's gospel, Barabbas just pops into the story. In the other gospels, we find out that, there's a, that there is a custom of the Roman authorities releasing one of the prisoners, probably a political prisoner, during the Passover festival as a gesture of uh, some kind of, uh, you know, hospitable gesture. Here we don't have that at all. Suddenly the crowds just demand Barabbas when Pilate is talking to them about releasing Jesus. They don't want Jesus, they want Barabbas. And then the narrator of the gospel says, this was a man who had been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder. Now, we have to understand, no doubt his, the murder was not a murder that didn't have anything to do with the, the insurrection. Clearly, the murder that he was, that uh, Barabbas was guilty of was a political murder. In other words, he's a terrorist. What we would call a terrorist, what he would no doubt call a freedom fighter, uh, or in fact a zealot. The interesting thing, of course, is that Barabbas means son of the father. And again, we talked about this when we did the Gospel of John, but uh, Jesus is the son of the father, and Barabbas, by name, is son of the father. There's a very strong New Testament tradition that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. So you have Jesus Barabbas versus Jesus Barabbas. It's which father, really? Ultimately, it's which father? And in the Gospel of John, it's very clear because Barabbas's father, spiritually speaking, is the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning. In other words, Barabbas is same song, second verse. And what's interesting is that in at the pitch of the crisis, we have to see that, 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 that a sacrificial crisis has developed around Jesus. At the pitch of the crisis, the crowd demands Barabbas. When its, when its sacrificial appetites have been, have been aroused and brought to a certain pitch, it demands Barabbas. And the reason it demands Barabbas, I would say, is because Barabbas can be counted upon and everything that Barabbas represents. A chip off the old block, a voice from the past, a voice that says we must always uh, avenge the deaths of our fathers. He's the son of the father. He's the same old thing, same song, second verse. We can count on the voice of Barabbas uh, shouting the sacrificial rationale in, with a sufficiently electrifying rhetoric that we will be caught up in it. And that's why we want it. In the midst of all of this, we want that voice. We want somebody who can say that and stir us and make us feel, why, yes, of course, and, and clear up this confusion. And so this goes back to Jesus earlier when he comes to Jerusalem saying they, they don't know what peace consists of. And I think this is a tremendously fateful moment. And I think we should also see it anthropologically that as we are drawn into a sacrificial crisis, there comes a moment when we have this incredible hunger to have a Barabbas among us who can galvanize and tell us how to direct our, our wrath 
and I would even relate that to the next episode which takes place, which is that they led Jesus away. They take uh, seize Simon of Cyrene and have him carry the cross for a while. A great number of people followed, and among them were women who were beating their breast and wailing. And so at first sight you say, well, there are these people really sad about Jesus being taken to be crucified. But you have to understand that these women are beating their breasts and wailing. These, they're not friends of Jesus. The beating their breasts and wailing was a, was a ritual act. And it was all part of the, the old sacred system. In John's Gospel, when Jesus comes in, Lazarus is dead, Martha and Mary and the Jewish women are all caught up in wailing, and Jesus gets angry at them. For wailing like that. Wailing was a ritual. You hired wailers to come in and wail at certain points. So it wasn't, this isn't sort of like people standing along the roadside saying, woe is me, I'm sorry this is happening. They were, they were engaged in the, in the standard ritual that accompanied these things. And so when Jesus says to them what he says, we should take note, which is, he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, Cover us. For if you do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? That's a wonderfully haunting statement. The, The reason I would relate this to Barabbas, to the Barabbas story that just precedes it, is is that the wailing of the women corresponds to the to the to the need for Barabbas. In, they they both represent this sort of itch to fall into the frenzy in some way. And Jesus is saying, if you go in that direction, you're going to fall into total chaos. In other words, Barabbas and Caesar are the same thing. If Barabbas can take power and be crowned, he can be Caesar. Caesar got there by being Barabbas before he was Caesar. That's how it all happened. But in order for Barabbas to become Caesar, the violence that he uses to take power has to be sacralized. And that's where the rub comes in. Because Jesus is about to destroy the sacralizing mechanism. So if the sacralizing mechanism is destroyed and we still demand Barabbas, we're stuck with Barabbas with no route to the, to the Caesar transformation. We're stuck with just a constant churning up of the violent overthrow, one after another. No, no possibility of dipping it in bronze and putting it up on the mantelpiece, if you see what I'm saying. No possibility of sacralizing it, freezing it, and restoring some kind of order. Now, this is, I'm speaking in the, in historically, this thing has fallen apart very gradually as the paraclete has, has uh, carried on the revelation. Nevertheless, I think structurally we have to see that when Jesus says this about the wailing and the demand for Barabbas, what he's saying is those old forms of curing, the old form was this madness, we'll cure ourselves of this madness if we fall completely mad and go into an absolute frenzy which will produce a kind of violence that can be sacralized. And then... Lo and behold, where Barabbas once stood will stand Caesar or the new Davidic king or, in other words, some sacralized form of the 
of, uh, of the power. And when Jesus says, warns the women of, women of Jerusalem who are wailing, I think he's saying, I mean, at least reading, it, reading this text anthropologically, one would say, it's not going to work anymore. If you call on Barabbas, if you think the Barabbas option is going to get you out of this, it's just going to get you deeper into it. Then Jesus is crucified. One has to say something about the amazing line, which is so important. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the definition of human ignorance. This is the epicenter of all human ignorance. The, the source of all mystification is right here. It's being identified. This is not just, oh, these people here don't know what they're doing. This is the site of the not knowing. This is where the not knowing starts and spreads out. And in order to break it, it has to be broken at this place. Then Jesus is crucified. There are two, a criminal on each side. And one of them gets caught up in mocking Jesus and the other one does not. After chastising the, his fellow criminal for mocking Jesus, he then turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is the only time in all the Gospels when anybody addresses Jesus by name. And the person who addresses him is a condemned criminal. And when Jesus responds to him and says, Today you will be with me in paradise, these are the last words to a human being in the gospel. The last words of Jesus in the gospel are a prayer to God. But the last words to a human being are to, the, to this condemned criminal. When the criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, it really underscores the difference between the idea of immortality, which is a Greek idea, and the idea of resurrection, which is a biblical idea. The source of our faith in resurrection is that the relationship with God is one that death cannot break. So there's nothing automatic about it in the way that immortality is automatic. But it is that it's possible to have a relationship with the living God such that it cannot be broken. Now, we can't, because the living God is so eager for this relationship, no one can say about someone else, well, they don't have one, I'm sorry. <laughs> because we don't know how eagerly God seeks out such relationships and what, what slender threads he's willing to settle for. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's important to see that Christian faith in resurrection is a faith 
that uh, the God to whom we pray will remember us by name. Thank you. By name. Okay. And then Jesus dies. And this is the moment when in that text that I've been talking about for the last six or eight months, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. The centurion is a, is a Greek, a pagan, a Roman, pagan, who doesn't, uh, a Gentile, he doesn't know anything about the biblical tradition. All he, he's a good Roman, he salutes, he believes that uh, Rome only does this to people who deserve it, and and lo and behold, he has seen the innocence of the victim. The one thing that you cannot see and remain inside the culture generated by the victimization scenario is the innocence of the victim. And he has just seen it. And so he has just, without realizing it, deprived himself of the coziness of being inside that little cultural envelope. And at the same time, it says, and when all the crowds who had gathered there for the spectacle, the spectacle is the spectacle of, of uh, scape, mob scapegoating, which is what, gen what crowds always come to. That's what creates the crowds. It is the spectacle that creates the embryo of cultural uh, consensus. They came for that purpose. When they saw what had taken place in the word, the Greek word here, theoria, for saw, is, the, is a, a word that means uh, they saw in a vast way, a bigger way, more profound way. When they really saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. Now, to me, this is a tremendously significant uh, verse because Jesus has said, if you do not gather with me, you will be scattered. And they who came to be gathered by that victimizing scenario, were scattered. So the, the scattering has already begun to take place. At the moment of the crucifixion, it has begun to take place. And the next 2,000 years of history were just, are just a, an, an elaboration of that process. When we say that Jesus has taken away the sin of the world, what we're saying is that he's taken away the generative power of the scapegoating mechanism. And right here you see that it has lost already in the Gospels, lost its generativity. They're already drifting away. When Jesus says, those who are not gathered with me will scatter, you could say you, you have in embryo here the scattering. But the next verse is the embryo of a gathering because it says, but all his acquaintances including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. The acquaintances of Jesus stood there, pondering it, like Mary pondering it in her heart. And the next thing we'll have is the moving in, the gathering. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He asked Pilate for the body and, and uh, took the body and laid it in his tomb. Moving in, you see, a gathering in. It says, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So uh, the embryonic movement of those who will be gathered with him. I want to go back to 
something we talked about last week and then proceed with the resurrection stories. And it's that same passage that I've been going back to over and over and over again for months. At the moment of Jesus' death in the Gospel of Luke, we're told that the centurion saw what had taken place. He praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. And as I've said many, many times, the centurion is a Gentile. He has no scriptural preparation for this. Nevertheless, the power of this revelation is such that he's able, despite his own enculturation, which has prepared him to believe that Rome and the authorities only do this to people who deserve it, in spite of all that, he's able to see the innocence of the victim. And seeing the innocence of the sacrificial scapegoat is the beginning of the end of conventional cultural arrangement. Uh, and the whole psychological set of reflexes that are, that are uh, generated in, in that uh, cultural arrangement. The next verse is even more powerful, of course, and it is that when all the crowds that had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And I talked about this last week, uh, this returning home. First of all, to see that, coming for the spectacle, to see what really took place, to have the scales fall from their eyes, uh, is to have them turn around and go away. And last week, the theme, one of the themes that I found so significant in Luke's gospel is the theme of gathering and scattering. The theme of gathering and scattering. Uh, uh, Jesus says, those who do not gather with me will be scattered. And here, as I said last week, I think we have the beginning of the scattering. That is to say, these people have not been converted by what they saw, but they saw enough not to have been galvanized by what it was. You see what I mean? So the sacrificial ritual did not reach some kind of catharsis that produced esprit de corps uh, shared by all the people who participated in the spectacle and so on and so forth. It produced exactly the opposite. And so they turn around, turn around walk home, beating their breasts in consternation over what has happened. And I said last week that, I, that to say that... that uh, uh, Jesus is the lamb slain that takes away the, sins, the sin of the world is to say that he takes away the generative power of the scapegoating mechanism. And, and here we have the mechanism working without its generative power and people begin to scatter. So most of what I want to do this morning has to do with the scattering and gathering. Because in a way that's the high drama. The high drama is if the old humanity what Paul calls the old humanity, the old anthropos, relied on this scapegoating mechanism, then we really have a kind of supreme drama at this point in history and in the Revelation. Namely, without that mechanism, can humanity pull itself together, to use a gathering image? Can humanity pull itself together without that mechanism for pulling itself together and that's in a sense the historical question the anthropological question and so i want to have that as the in the in the background as we talk about the resurrection story and i want to share with you one of dozens and dozens of uh, contemporary incidences that i could have that i could have uh, drawn upon 
to show that this is happening today. Precisely what is depicted in Luke chapter 23, verse 47, 48 is happening today. Namely, the crowds that come to witness the spectacle see what has happened and turn around and go home beating their breast. Now, as I say, you know, I, I, I limit my dose of news. You wouldn't think so because I talk about it so much, but I really do because I don't have time for it. I told somebody the other day, I was giving a little talk to some ministers, I said, and they said, well, you talk a lot about things in the news. I said, you know what? I don't have a television. I never listen to radio news. I, ne- the only newspapers I read are the, the Sonoma paper, which is just local stuff, what's happening here, and the New York Times, which I read in a grand total of 10 minutes every day. And that's it. I'm almost afraid to take in more news than that because I would be too busy footnoting, annotating, adding things to my... And I don't have time for it. So, anyway. But this is one. These are things that just fell into my lap. So, earlier this week, there was this story. You probably saw a reference to it. But it's a story of, of, a, of an Israeli general who has admitted that during the 1956 war he ordered the execution, for no reason whatsoever, of some uh, uh, Egyptian prisoners of war because they didn't know what to do with them, so they just said, well, we have to kill them. And this has created a, 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 a hubbub in Israel, as you can imagine. It's a moral problem, and, and um, the Israelis recognize it as that, and so it's, 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 it's a major thing. Well, the headline of the story read as follows. After a general tells of killing POWs in 1956, Israelis argue over the ethics of war. And then in the story, which is an interesting story, by the way, in a way, I wish we, I would have found, there are plenty of Christian versions of this, so it's too bad that it's not one of those, but this is the one that fell into my lap. But I hope you, you, you won't have any trouble extrapolating, I'm sure. Uh, there were two, two little boxes, you know how the, in newspaper stories they have a little box and they highlight little passages and the two highlighted passages are these the first one is a blow to the belief that Israel holds to a higher code of conduct and the second one is what are the corrupting influences of a violent history now we've all had a violent history we all tend to think that our society uh, adheres to a higher code of conduct so we're not talking about something that's Israeli. We're talking about something that's fundamentally human. That's why I'm sharing this with you. But I thought the, the comments, which again are completely generic in a way, exactly the kind of comments you would expect from, from uh, anybody that is troubled by this revelation. Now, it's possible, even though in today's world it's increasingly less so, it's possible that somebody could still be living sufficiently immune to the biblical tradition so that a revelation that their partisans murdered their adversaries in some war that's 50 years old or 40 years old would not present a moral problem. But certainly inside the biblical uh, purview, that presents a moral problem. So I'm reading this not because it's about something that happened in Israel in 1956, but because it's about what is happening in our world as a result of the biblical revelation. So here's what it says. The Israeli government decided on Sunday that it would not pursue a retired general's admission that he killed unarmed Egyptian prisoners during the 1956 war. A revelation made this month that provoked new soul-searching 
soul-searching, that's beating one's breast as one walks away, right? Provokes new soul-searching among Israelis about the corrupting force of the violence that has characterized so much of their history. God forbid if we start comparing how many we have killed and how many they have killed. Shulamit Alani, the Minister of Communications, told reporters after the weekly meeting of the Cabinet on Sunday, this kind of arithmetic will make us engage in a discussion that will destroy our society. End quote. There you have it. There you have it. That's, that's Luke 23, 48. They saw what had taken place and they turned around, went home, beating their breasts. Well, I think that's extremely important for understanding what's going on in our world today. And the way Luke speaks of this is in terms, many times, in terms of gathering and scattering. You see, the scattering is going to take place. Will there be a new kind of gathering? And the scattering is going to take place precisely because the old mechanism for gathering is being broken. Apropos of this story in Israel and all the others, all the million others just like it, let me share this with you. Girard, you know, speaks of myth. As, um, as that which veils the sacrificial event and keeps it from being morally troubling. In his book, Violence and the Sacred, he says that the function of myth is, quote, to trick violence into spending itself on victims whose death will provoke no reprisals. And then the question, of course, is, after the biblical revelation has been let loose on the world, are there any victims left whose death will, one can confidently predict will provoke no reprisal. Now, a reprisal is just simply to go back, to, to, to avenge the death of, of a sacrificial victim because one recognizes the innocence of that victim. To avenge that death is simply to re-enter the sacrificial system. That's, that's what revenge is. Revenge is the, is the sacrificial mechanism passing from one generation to another. Uh, so avenging the death is no, no solution to the problem. But the point is, is it possible now to find victims whose, whose death can be mythologized and therefore uh, uh, not arouse some moral misgivings? And the, and the answer, of course, is no, or the answer in a historical setting is fewer and fewer of those categories of victims uh, can be victimized with moral impunity. And I, this made me think of that uh, Auden poem, which I quote in the book. It's called Diaspora, and it's a poem about the perennial victim. And it's really a poem also about uh, Christian anti-Semitism. And Auden wrote it in the aftermath of, of uh, the Holocaust and World War II. But I think it's a tremendously powerful one, and it applies to what we're talking about here. So I'll just read uh, the sections of it to you. He says, how he's speaking here of the, of the victim. He says, how he survived them, they could never understand. No worlds they drove him from were ever big enough. That's a wonderful line, isn't it? Auden just does that sometimes. It's really amazing. No worlds they ever drove him from were ever big enough. And then Auden says, 
speaking of the eternal victim, the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. He doesn't use that phrase, but he says, He fulfilled the role for which he was designed. On heat with fear he drew their terrors to him and was a godsend to the lowest of mankind till there was no place left where they could still pursue him except that exile which he called his race. He's talking about the Holocaust. But envying him even that, they plunged right through him into a land of mirrors without time or space, and all they had to strike now was the human face. I think that's a tremendous commentary on, on the effect of the biblical revelation in our world. All they had to strike now was the human face. Okay, so the question is gathering and scattering and the effect of the Christian revelation, specifically the, the effect of the revelation of the cross on that question. I'm going afield here a little bit. This is, you know, my, my disease, which is stream of consciousness research. We, we put the word research in uh, quotation marks there. Um, what came to me was the, what I call the Caiaphas formula in the Gospel of John. And I went to it and I found it's quite interesting in this respect in terms of gathering and scattering. I couldn't, I was, I thought, now, you see, I'm doing something that biblical scholars don't do. What you, don't, what you do is you say, look, John's writing in his context and Mark and Matthew and Luke and Paul and so on, and you have to understand them in their own context, and you don't do a whole lot of cross-referencing because you get very confused about uh, the intent of the author and uh, the community to which they're writing and the sources on which they're drawing and so on. But I think probably that the that the uh, divine inspiration that underlies the biblical revelation is such that we might find something very interesting if we start cross-referencing these things a little more than we do at the scholarly level. So here's the Caiaphas speech in, in uh, John's Gospel. Caiaphas says, You do not seem to have grasped the situation at all. You fail to see that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than that the whole nation should perish. And then the narrator says, He did not speak in his own person, but as high priest of that year, he was prophesying that Jesus was to die for the nation. So he's speaking as high priest. This is in his official capacity. Ex cathedra, he's speaking. Prophesying that Jesus was to die for the nation. In other words, to keep the gathering process gathering. Now, what is the, the old gathering process is we, an expulsion. We gather together by expelling one. It's very economical. So he was prophesying that, says the narrator in John's Gospel. And then it says, and not for the nation only, but also to gather together in one the scattered children of God. So there you have gathering and scattering again. So you see the narrator in John's Gospel is making a leap that Caiaphas, of course, didn't make. 
he's seeing something prophetic in what Caiaphas says that Caiaphas didn't see. What Caiaphas saw was the scapegoating mechanism. What the narrator of the Gospel of John saw was that that very act was going to be part of a scattering which was at the center of which was a was the cross that would be the focal point of a new gathering so it's it i mean i wish i had time to try to you know ring the changes on all these uh interrelationships here but for the moment i'm just throwing them out there there's this process of this there's this there's this question of gathering and scattering and the implication here of course is that the children of God are scattered now we could say well that means scattered uh, the diaspora it means before Jesus comes or while he's doing while he's engaged in his ministry or something and that's one way of seeing it but I think I I would read that scattering as having to do with the effect of the cross because if you put that this verse next to Luke twenty three forty eight, then you have. I begin to sound like a preacher, don't I? Have, I just say these numbers. You're supposed to me- immediately know what all these numbers mean. <laughs> anyway, um, it's. It, it, I think they make an interesting comparison in terms of the anthropological ramifications of the cross. Another back in earlier in Luke's gospel is, I think, also apropos, although more subtly. And that is the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus says, which of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together... His friends, he gathers his friends, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So the hundred sheep represent a, a kind of a gathering, but it's a gathering minus one. Now, I'm just looking at this in a kind of structural way. It's a gathering minus one. The Good Shepherd, I'm, here again I'm cross-referencing, even using that title, but the shepherd here in this story is, is the shepherd who goes to get that one even though he abandons the earlier gathered group. You see, there's the, there's the congregation he walks away from because it's the old anthropos. It's gathered minus one. And this shepherd goes to get that one and brings that one back and has another gathering gathers together and rejoices in that one. So you have two anthropological gestures here. One is a community built on acts of expulsion. You see? Burning the witch. Joining in the camaraderie that is that is created by the witch burning or the or the act of expulsion. And the other, that's the old Anthropos, and the other is the community built on acts of reconciliation, the rehabilitation of the victim, the forgiveness of sinners, you see, that sort of thing. The recognition of one's own sinfulness in having participated in the scapegoating event, hearing the cock crow, all of that. But a new kind of gathering. 
Okay, so last week I said, I, in a way, I'm just elaborating on the last thing I talked about last week. Last week I said in that verse which says they went home beating their breast, you have in embryo the scattering. And then the uh, next verse, you have the embryo of gathering. It says, but his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is not a gathering. It doesn't say the gathering has begun, but it does say that they're not walking away. They are pondering these things in their heart. They are they're, they're holding their ground. They're in that place of waiting that Simon Weil speaks of so eloquently. You see, But they're not walking away. Now, there'll be some walking away. We're, we're going to talk about the Emmaus story. It's about walking away. But for the moment, these acquaintances of his, including women who uh, followed him from Galilee, are standing there watching attentively. You know, Simon Weil speaks of attention. And she says, really devoted attention is a form of prayer. So that's really the eschatological community in embryo, just the beginning of it. But, but the jury is still out, so to speak. Will they stand there for a while and shuffle around and then drift away, or will something else happen? Well, the next thing we have is Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin, uh, he did not agree, at least in retrospect, with their, with their judgment. He makes a move. He steps forward, so to speak. He steps in. He, he, he's drawn to the cross, to Christ, to the body of Christ. He does something very courageous. He goes to Pilate, asks for the body, takes the body and puts it in his tomb. And then it says, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed, namely followed Joseph of Arimathea while he was doing this, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now I want to do something else. I, I hope, I mean, only the Spirit is in charge of this, but I hope that I don't end up doing too much anthropology today because what I really want to do is has something more directly to do with faith. But uh, I suppose part of my calling is to... Uh, do this other thing too uh, so I want to do this it has to do with the business of gathering and scattering and I'm reminded of it because of these women standing watching that sort of frozen moment and I want to talk about that I want to talk about that in terms of its anthropological uh, reverberation and in order to do so I want to tell you about a scholar who's a, a, a really a brilliant scholar whose name is Eric Gans. He's at UCLA. And uh, he studied under Girard. And then he went his own way. He has, he has a, a slightly different take on the founding event. But, he's, but, I, but I find him very interesting and very probing and and thoughtful and insightful. And he talks about the founding event, and it's precisely here where his, his, his key difference with uh, Girard comes in. 
Nevertheless, I want to read a little passage to you because I think it'll help us understand the anthropological background of these things that are taking place in Luke. Gans looking for the moment of, of hominization. And for him, the moment of hominization comes not with the crescendo of the violence, but the moment after that, when the violent community is about to close in even on the corpse of the victim. You know, in so many of the stories, particularly mythological stories about founding myths, you have the dismemberment of the victim or the eating of the victim so that the, so that the acquisitive drive and the violent drive are so commingled in that frenzy that very often the victim is dismembered and consumed. So that, and, and what Gans is saying is that culture begins at a moment when, when you're almost at that place, but there's an arrested moment. Here's how he describes it. The sign we postulated was rather, quote, an abortive gesture of appropriation. The, the whole crowd reaching for the body of the victim. The, the abortive gesture of appropriation, back to Gans, he says, this gesture designates the sacred object that appeared to each member of the group as both infinitely desirable and infinitely dangerous because it was the object of the appetites of all the others. Prestige is nothing but mimetic contagion focused on one object. And so the, the community focusing all of its mimetic fascination on one object creates the sacred. And then if someone reaches in, crosses that threshold between the sacred and the profane, then that person can very easily become the object of everybody else's fascination, which will result in simply one more corpse. So... So Gan says, the sacred object appears to each member of the group as both infinitely desirable and infinitely dangerous because it is the object of the appetites of all the others. And then he said, the group of murderers surrounding the body are transformed into a community not by the mere fact of the, pa of the passage of violence to peace. That's where he differs with Girard. Girard would say that's the moment of sacralization. But through their renouncement of appetitive appropriation of the remains of the corpse. So they stop. They're frozen. And that frozen act becomes the first act of worship. It's that, it's almost the bowing down. The hands reaching out to uh, appropriate become the hands uh, bowing down, in, as Gans sees it. So back to Gans. He says, the hands reaching out toward the object hesitate in mid-course through the fear of each that he will fall victim to the reprisals of all the others. This hesitation turns the gesture of appropriation into a gesture of designation, or as Robert would say, sacralization, and the locus of the body into the original scene of representation, which is to say the, the moment of hominization, the birth of human culture. Well, I know it's highly technical. That's, that's the nature of the of the discourse at that level. Why am I telling you this? <laughs> you, may, you may have wondered. <laughs> because we're going to talk about the empty tomb. That's why.